This is another bottle down on Co-op Radio, KOOP Hornsby, Austin, 91.7 FM, and KOOP.org. I'm your host, Mark Rayshap, here to appreciate wines from all over the world and to talk with Austin's leading wine professionals, from winemaker to sommelier and everyone in between. Now it's time to put another bottle down. Good afternoon, Austin. My name is Mark Rayshap. We've got a really special episode for you today. I'm here in the studio with a good friend and colleague, Francois Pointeau, and he is a freelance writer. He had a, a story just come out in the Austin Chronicle. He's a um, wine-centric bartender at the Whippin, and he always has a really amazing twist on, uh, on wine and his own real interesting thoughts. He's a published poet, and he's a former programmer at co-op and uh, former host of writing on the air he did that for six years and um, I, I, I have to say that uh, he is the one who got me into this whole uh, radio business so I want to say thank you to Francois Ponto for that um, we are actually going to do something a little bit different today because I just got back from Spain and learned a whole ton of stuff so um, we're going to listen to a little bit more music and be back and Francois is going to be uh, interviewing me Thank you so much for tuning in, uh, and Francois, thank you so much for being here. Francois Ponteau, um, uh, it, does it feel good to be back in the co-op studios? It feels awesome. Thank you for having me here. I, I love co-op, first of all, and I love talking on a mic. I like hearing myself speak. I'm one of those kinds of people, because <laughs> yeah. I got a face for radio, so, you know. <laughs> well, uh, you know, it's so interesting, because on, on this show, I really try to give voice to people who are doing really interesting stuff in the in the world of wine, sommeliers, people who do wine lists. Um, so I want to first talk about um, your place in the wine uh, in the wine world and how you think about wine. And it's always great for the listener to to uh, know where you're coming from. So so tell us a little bit about yourself and how you know how you're involved. Yeah, well, f- first of all, I've been selling wine for about 10, 12 years or so. Yeah. I kind of forget how, exactly how many years because I've drank a lot of wine in, in, <laughs> during that time. And I, at, at this point in time, I'm a bartender at the Whip Inn, which is a cool little venue in South Austin, where I'm one of only three uh, wine bartenders there, yeah, yeah. Uh, actually only two, and then the wine manager, and and it's kind of fun because we have such a great wine program there, and yet most everybody in Austin knows us as a beer pub, right. as a beer centric kind of pub. Yet right. we have a, we have always over twenty bottles by the glass, and we have over five hundred bottles that you can just get by the bottle. Right, <laughs> right, that's, right. That's that's not just beer, right. and every single bottle there is is excellent. And my and my thought on wine has always been the same, and I come from the point that wine is something to be enjoyed, right? Yeah, and to have fun with, yeah. And that most people actually overthink wine, and 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 I'm not, 
you know, for you, you're a wine professional. It's your business to overthink wine. It's okay for you to overthink wine. Well, you know, I still have to, and one of the things that I really think about on this show is to um, present wine in a way that is still fun and, and it opens you up to different experiences and all that kind and of I, stuff. And I appreciate that. And I, yeah. when I listen to your show, I love hearing that aspect of things because there are a lot of people out there, and we're in the wine industry, people who work in this industry, who for some reason feel like they have to be a little bit snotty. Right. And that is a very nasty image that this industry has yeah. for, for good reasons. Right. <laughs> but it shouldn't be that way. Right. Wine is about enjoyment. You know, I think what's really interesting, though, and and to and first of all, I agree entirely with you. You know, I have a lot of tastings where it's just somebody goes rambling on and on just to hear themselves speak, and um, and there it seems like almost the point is being missed completely. And, and but on the other hand, sometimes, and I don't want to defend the wine snob, uh, but uh, I think that sometimes people might go to these lengths because they think that something special is happening and they're trying to understand it themselves. And and I get. That. That. I get that, and there's there's ways of doing that without right. without you know pushing away potential wine drinkers because right. there are a lot of people out there, and I hear this all the time at work. And, you know, they come in and they say, "I want a Pinot Noir or Cabernet Sauvignon." They say this because those are the only two words that they know, right. not right. because they want a Pinot Noir or Cabernet Sauvignon. So I have to say to them, well, "What exactly is it that you want right now?" Right. And then they they start getting scared. Well, I don't, maybe I'll just have a beer. You know, yeah. it's like. You know, just don't worry about it so right. much. Don't overthink it. And I think a lot of us in this industry, um, like you said, we're trying to understand it ourselves and we make it way too complicated. You don't have to know everything. You don't have to know every varietal, every region. You don't have to know what a, a varietally specific good wine is. It right. doesn't really matter. All you have to know is, am I enjoying this stuff or not? And, and in fact, uh, the more that you know and think that you'll never know every single variety. It's not even possible. It's not possible. And no. the cool thing about wine is it changes every single year. Every single year and every single week almost. I've had, you know, the same bottle and t- changes totally from one week to the next. I was just watching a documentary on Netflix and I can't remember the name of the documentary, but it was based on wines. And, and you know, they were interviewing some of the most famous winemakers of the world in France and Italy. Was it and M- Mundo, Mondovino? No. No, no, no. It's no. totally different. Okay. <laughs> Completely different. But, it, you know, it's like when these winemakers are like, you know, you can have the perfect season. It, it can be everything's great. And then two days before harvest, something happens that messes everything up. And you, right. But yet you still have to make wine that year. Yeah. And, and so whereas beer... You know, once you get the formula down, well, yeah. you can make the same beer over and over and over again, year after year, day after day, doesn't matter. Right. The variables are so few, and there's a lot less riding on it. I mean, if you dump a batch of beer down the drain, um, well, that's, you know, the ingredients are minimal compared to all the work that you put into the vineyard throughout the entire year, and you only get one chance at it. One chance. Year. That's yeah. it. You yeah. pick the grapes. You make the wine. <laughs> I, I, and I think that, that, and it's that challenge that I think really, really intrigues winemakers. And, and I think that winemakers are a little masochistic <laughs> in a lot of senses. You, you, I think you have to be to go into this business. And, anyways, who goes into this business? Yeah. You know, you have to inherit your way through this business. You yeah. know, in, in Europe, uh, these, some of these families have been at the same properties for 10, 15, 20 generations. Right. 
and 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 in fact that was what i really saw on this trip um i you know we were in a part of spain where they were all uh generations and generations and even they themselves didn't know how many generations they were make their family was making wine you know i mean when we asked one guy he was just like throws up his hands and he goes <laughs> i don't know it's been forever <laughs> and it you know, right now, there are certain regions of Europe that are enjoying um, very good sales and their their, their right. wine bottles or price of the wine bottles going through the roof. One such region is in, you know, in northern Italy where Barolo is made. Right. And uh, that was one of the part of this documentary is these families, you know, just my grandfather could barely feed his children. Right. But he did it for the love of it. And all of a sudden, Barolo now is is being coveted everywhere around the world on a different episode of another bottle down here I, I had an italian in the studio and he said well if you were um you know if you were uh in the 60s making wine in barolo you wouldn't tell the women that you would say that you work for fiat or something <laughs> so no, it's quite you know now reversed. It's changed. Yeah, yeah, you yeah, wouldn't definitely. tell that you work for fiat these yeah. days <laughs> so you know that's my philosophy on wine there's a lot of things that happens there's yeah. there's a lot of things that happen from 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 those vines all the way to your glass. But quite honestly, you don't have to think of any of that. Right. You really don't. And and people tell me, and also the other thing that people just think way too much about is is how to match uh, wine with foods. Right, right. If you like it, it's awesome. If right. you like that <laughs> flavor of that particular wine and that food and how they match together, guess right. what? You just won. Right, yeah. <laughs> it doesn't matter what anybody else says. Right, right. <laughs> Well, um, you know, and, and on a personal note, you know, I always thought that you were very incredible at talking to people, getting them to open up and, you know, trying to, without any prejudices, get to get to know what they really wanted, you know. Well, I think f from our side, from our, you know, not the consumer, but the person who actually, In one of my biggest pleasures is to put a bottle of wine in somebody's hands. And then two days later, they come back to me and they say, Francois, wow. Yeah. You, I you, didn't know what yeah. it was, but it was incredible. <laughs> it was incredible. Please do this to me again. Right. <laughs> it was some, some, I couldn't pronounce it. <laughs> and, and I think, yeah, that's, that, that's part of the pleasure for me yeah. and why I, I keep at it and I stay in and this notice, business. And notice, folks, for the, those of you listening out, out there, that did not, none of that process involved condescending or anything no, like that. You know? never. It should yeah. never. And it's, it's like anything in life. You, you have to kind of listen to what the person is telling you. Right. And, and the wine, quote unquote, professionals who overwhelm you with information, right. they're not listening to you. It's kind of like a sleight of hand. They're trying to distract you from something. <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> Where in fact, you should, you should be doing the least amount of talking and the consumer should be the, doing the most amount of talking so that you know what to put in their hands. Yeah. Yeah. You know, what is it that they feel like drinking today? Yeah. Well, what do we feel like drinking today, Francois? Oh, my God. Let's drink some <laughs> Spanish wine. Awesome. Why don't we? I yeah, think, yeah, yeah. How long were you in Spain? So it was a full week. We arrived from uh, Saturday uh, overnight to Sunday. We didn't even spend any time in Madrid, and it was right up to León. Now, um, they make wine in almost every... Uh, state, if you will, in in Spain they call them autonomias, the the the, the states of Spain, um, and the goal of this trip was to focus on the northwest. So we 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 right away took a, a train to uh, León, which was which is one of the bigger cities. That's that's one of the cities that is known um, from Castilla León, and that's the state there. And so then we we first started in the city León, and then we went to the 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 little wine region. 
of Bierzo. And then from there, we went into Galicia, and we'll get into all of that. Oh, but, my gosh. But it was I, a full week. Why don't you take me with you? <laughs> <laughs> well, my suitcase, I had to take a carry-on, so it wasn't, it wasn't <laughs> yeah. big enough. <laughs> um, yeah, well, I guess I'll just have to shed a few pounds yeah, next yeah, time. Yeah. Next time, yeah. <laughs> and you, you were gone for a good week. So it was a full week, yeah, and it was just every day um, wineries and, and, and meeting the folks who were, who were telling the story of the region and then, you know, seeing the, the, the cuisine and seeing it was a few touristy things, but mostly it was just wineries and, and vineyards. And which is amazing, but it's yeah. also a lot of work. Oh, it, oh, it yeah, is. It's, we, it's nonstop work. We were we were gone at nine, eight thirty nine in the morning, and uh, didn't you know we didn't get back into the hotel, the next hotel, until midnight, twelve thirty at night, and so um, and and all that eating is 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 tough work. Too. <laughs> it's all that eating and all that wonderful wine, but but, uh, but processing it too is really was really an interesting thing because you see so much interesting stuff happening, and you're trying to to wrap your head around it. I mean, this was a region, the Northwestern Spain before going there was a region that I was pretty passionate about. Uh, I, I mean, I had known these wines on like somewhat of a superficial level of what, you know, what's around here and in Texas. And then, um, and then also having read a little bit, but, um, but there's something very special that's happening. In so, so tell me some of the things that why you, because I've known you for a long time now. Yeah. And, and and I do know that you've, you're very passionate about Spanish wines in particular, all kinds of wines, but Spanish right. wines in particular. And that these small, lesser-known regions of Spain are somewhat what you like to go for. Right. And yet here you go, you've traveled for a week. Uh, what is something that you learned that kind of blew you away or that you you saw that kind of blew you away and said, wow, I didn't, this is not something I would have thought about? Well, um, I didn't realize that in this tiny little nook of Spain were some of the steepest slopes of any vineyard anywhere, 70 degree inclines. Wow. 70. And so, you know, we always think of as uh, like the Mosul or the, the Duero River in Portugal as some of the steepest slopes, and they are, uh, yeah. but these, these rivaled them. So that just blew me away. Oh, and by the way, uh, as we're talking here, I did put, I did put some photos up on, uh, on the Facebook page so you can kind of like see these steep slopes. Uh, so that's facebook.com slash another bottle down radio. And, uh, and I'll also post a little review on the co-op blog, koop.org so we can follow along. So, so this is interesting to me because I've, I just, just two weeks ago, I was tasting with an Italian winemaker right. and he was showing me pictures of the, the, the land that he works on a daily basis. And it was just, it was steps. So it wasn't, the, the, the vines weren't on, on, the, on the steep itself, but it was steps where you, right. you can only get to by climbing up right. there. Yeah. And, and sometimes I have to ask myself, what is wrong with these people? Well, <laughs> because it's insane work. It is insane. It is insane. And um, we, we met uh, one of the winemakers um, who said, Pedro Manuel from Guimaro, and he had said that uh, his grandmother would, um, you know, it's also about the stories of these people. So, uh, so, so Pedro Manuel uh, from Guimaro said his grandmother uh, would pick a basket full of grapes, carry them on her head to the next town over, which was, you know, seven kilometers or so. I, I forget exactly, but it, I mean, it was a hike. Yeah. And then she would sell the grapes at the, in the market. She would um, use that money to buy just enough fabric 
for to make clothes for the winter and what was little left over and she hoped that there was a little left over because then she would buy a little bit of chocolate you know and <laughs> i mean it almost makes me cry you know <laughs> yeah. just to see these slope these terraced vineyards and to see what it takes to uh you know to harvest them and uh and then and that's just passed down from generation to generation and and that that desire to um uh, cultivate that land. So, so one of the one of the I think key points to this region is that it's along the Camino de Santiago de Compostela. So, um, which is very touristic and. Uh, well, it's it's touristic in a way, but it has a very deep tradition, and and all along this this camino, this pilgrimage. So this is the pilgrimage of Santiago de Compostela. So, um, and throughout medieval times, um, a lot of this civilization was was popped up to, um, you know, to service the camino, uh, and it also during Roman times there was um, a lot of servicing of, uh, and this was a very important piece that there was a major gold mine. The largest gold mine of the Roman Empire was in this area. It was just just ten minutes uh, southwest of Bierzo, and so um, what you have is you you have this huge civilization that pops up during Roman times. And what did the Romans do? Wherever they went, they brought vines so that they could then uh, create beverage for their workers. So that was a that link was so palpable. I mean, you could really feel, you know, the mining community plus the, the pilgrimage, um, and it just, it was beautiful. Yeah, would we have wine anywhere in Europe if it wasn't for the Romans? That's right, yeah. I don't think so. No, I mean, it was, it was, it was the, you know, the cultivation um, through, you know, and then the Greeks passed it on to the Romans, and I, yeah. I, I think um, Caesar would require his troops, his soldiers, to drink, like, what is it? One liter a day, a day of wine, and when in battle, at least three liters. Yeah. Can you imagine? <laughs> the, the battle quota is... <laughs> I if love you're that. in battle, you must drink at least three liters. I mean, yeah. I, I don't know. Can you drink three liters? I'm sure we could probably force ourselves to drink three liters of wine, but that's a lot of wine. It's a lot of wine. Uh, we, we will say that, that wine was a little bit less alcoholic of the time, but, you know, but, but <laughs> Still. That's, that's, a, that's a minor detail. We don't have to talk about yeah, that. Yeah, we don't have to talk about that. But... But you're right. So the, I think the resilience of people and the resilience of farmers and the, the resilience is and the stories is what makes those wines awesome. It, those wines are awesome anyways. And, and you can see what's, what's incredible at, about this region. Okay, let's, you know, I think it might be interesting to, to look at some of the major, and I've been through a lot of the major regions of Spain. I mean, Rioja, which is the, the main one, and that's kind of like the California kind of like the California of Spain. I mean, there's big wineries, they hire architects to design them. And, you know, when you're meeting, you're not necessarily meeting with, you know, maybe the winemaker, you're, you know, they have like a whole team of people. Um, and, 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 you know, that's, that, that's great. I mean, it, it, it runs, the business is driven, but in some of the smaller regions, so where, where I was, there were no large wineries. In fact, it's impossible to have large wineries and and in fact each little plot of land and and um the vineyards were very segmented and so you have maybe only you know two three acre plots uh, that belong to a family see i think that's very difficult one for me to understand but i think yeah. for americans in general to understand because it's, you know in some regions of france like burgundy for example some people some wineries only have one one row right yeah. And so why is that? Tell us a little bit of the history behind how that evolved. Okay, so so it's actually um, 
you know, it, it really stems from uh, a few things. So first of all, um, during the, the, you know, it was that law where if, um, if, if the patriarch dies, if somebody, you know, somebody in the family dies who owns vineyards, then they're split equally amongst the children. And so, um, you know, that instead of it going to the firstborn or something like that, so it was split equally. So that's one of the reasons that Burgundy is so fragmented. And in fact, um, that's one of the things that this region Region, the, the region of Bierzo, Valdeoras, and uh, Ribera Sacra, that's one of the things that they that that really defines it, that it was split up, um, and so you have these tiny, tiny plots. Another thing is that the the there's no all of the vineyards are so incredibly hard to farm that it would be impossible to farm a plot of, you know, hundreds of acres. It just doesn't exist. And and to again really explain these all of these vineyards are worked entirely by hand yes. there's no machinery that goes anywhere close to them right yeah, well, in these regions right. um in rioja you do have mechanization and here let me give you an example so a, a pretty hot region right now you know hot is in in vogue right. uh, is <laughs> is the um it's also pretty warm but you know uh is um Rueda. So Rueda makes these really nice white wines from the Verdejo grape. Now, <clears throat> one of the winemakers here was telling us in a day you could almost plant with mechanization, you could plant about 10,000 vines in a day. In the region of Ribera Sacra, where he was talking about us, he could plant three vines in a day. So, I mean, wow. that gives you yeah. the, the, it, a feeling as to how in, in very incredibly, you know, um, how, how, how hard these vineyards are to cultivate. So let's kind of go back to the wine now. And uh, sure. let's say you're, you're in Bierzo. Uh, Bierzo is probably here. If you've heard of Bierzo, you probably drank Godello. Right. Uh, but, but what other grapes, what are the varietals or even in the red varietals or and what do they taste like? Right. What, what, do you, what do you experience when you drink yeah. their wines? So, um, you know, it's interesting because uh, wine is almost thought of by state, right? So we have Rioja is actually a state and a wine region. Absolutely. Um, here, it's, it's interesting that the, uh, these three regions, Bierzo, Valdeoras, and Ribera Sacra, they're, they're kind of three contiguous regions, and they pertain to the same culture, kind of. We'll talk about subtle differences, but they all grow similar grapes, uh, even though Bierzo is in Castilla León and the other two, Valdeoreas and Ribera Sacra, are in a different state, the state of Galicia that is right above Portugal. Does that make sense? Absolutely. Yeah. Okay, so so they these three regions pertain to a very similar um, similar similar wine culture. Now in Bierzo, the main grape, seventy five percent of the of the acreage is Mencia, which is a red grape. So let, let's talk um, about Mencia. So um, it's a very intriguing red grape. And in fact, it, it only grows in this area. It, it doesn't grow anywhere else. So nobody else is, we haven't tried to grow Mencia here in Texas, for example. Um, I haven't seen any Mencia here in Texas. There, there might be, there might be right. some, and there might be small experimental plots in, um, in California. But, but, but let, There's let's, a laboratory in the A&M that has Mencia. Okay, <laughs> probably, sure. yeah, probably, yeah, yeah. Um, but, 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 so the thing is, is though, this region, even though it's got thousands of years of history, 
only really came online and got some international attention in the the 2000s in the late in the 90s and the 2000s so even though it has this really crazy uh, uh, tradition of winemaking it didn't it wasn't garnering attention and we'll talk about let's we'll talk about that down the road a little bit uh, because it's very interesting why that is i mean the bierso do the, the the regulatory body didn't form until the early 90s until 1991 and we certainly didn't start seeing their wines over here in the United States for quite some time, and we barely see any of their wines here now. Yeah, it's, they're 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 um, they're pretty obscure, but Bierzo uh, is not, is the most prominent of the one of the regions that we're going to be talking about, uh, you know, on this show, and. And and so we, we're starting to see more and more every every month. Do I see kind of a new Bierzo coming into um, into in, into the market in Texas? So when you were drinking the wine from Bierzo and from I'm going to mispronounce these regions: Valdeoro, Valdeoras, Valdeoras, and Ribera Sacra. Ribera Sacra, yeah. When you were drinking their wines there on lo, on location, first of all, I just want to say. It doesn't matter what wine region you're in, whether it's California or Cote d'Iron or Burgundy, the wine is always better at the chateau, it, it does, <laughs> at the <yeah>. domain. <laughs> That's true. And, and it's true for a few reasons. You know, it's, it, it's true because, um, you know, when the wine travels less, uh, it, it's kind of a little, its integrity is a little bit kept intact. And then it also just, wine just tastes better when you're, when you're Traveling it, you know, enjoying. Traveling discovering. Yeah, you know, when you're discovering. Yeah, yeah. It, yeah wine, it, again, we go back to the beginning of the show here. Um, wine is about enjoyment of life. So if you are particularly enjoying that moment, then that wine is going to be so much better. Beyond that, though, right, yeah. <laughs> when you were drinking the red wines made from Mencia, right. uh, what were you thinking? What hits you the most? Was there similarities between the domains? Was yeah. there something, uh, uh, you know? Well, there's two, there's two. First of all, the way that I thought of Mencia before the trip was that um, the wines were were very well structured, so a lot of tannin, so really liking meat, um, you know, tons of red cherry fruit. But then what really distinguishes Mencia is kind of a gaminess. So people who like maybe a little bit of earthiness, maybe a little bit of that rustic, rustic quality of like Chateauneuf de Pop. Um, so you're they really me. get that. I, I think you would really I, like those yeah, ones. Yeah. As you know, I'm, I'm a big Cote de Rhone fan. Right, yeah. <laughs> so. and, and so they're a little bit darker than Cote de Rhone. So, you know, Grenache being the main grape of Cote de Rhone, I think they're, they're a little bit darker and they're a little bit more kind of impactful um, and a little bit more tannic than, than Cote de Rhone's. But, but you get this kind of gamey and, and tons of like licorice spice is it is it a wine that locally people lay down for several years before they drink or do people tend to drink them young well there's two styles because they certainly drink a lot of uh, young wine and and um, in Spain they often think that the fresher the wine the better but Mencia is very very age-worthy I mean I tasted a 2004 uh, Mencia and um, and from Dominio de Tares, which is one of the more famous uh, producers there, and it was still young at 2004. But you started to get that leather, and it was it was it was just dynamite. And what about on the whites? Uh, are there any good whites from there? I mean, other than the ones that we know here, right? So, so, so Bierzo is um, well. First of all, they do not grow hardly any international varieties in these three regions. So, n almost no cab. 
no Chardonnay. No, Chardonnay's kind of picking up a little bit, but um, but almost almost you know maybe there's one less than one percent of you know the international varieties, and and that's partially because the regions demand that they're the indigenous varieties. So Mencia is the indigenous variety, and um, the most prospective white variety is Godello. So um, if folks have not heard of uh, Godeo out there, um, it's a very interesting white grape. And it's not the most widely planted white grape in the region, but it's what I think a lot of the winemakers are talking about as the most interesting. It's Yeah, and it's super refreshing and fun to drink. Right. <laughs> but the, what, what people are really intrigued by Godeo about is you get this richness and this, you know, kind of um, luscious quality in the mouth that you would get almost from, you know, Chardonnay or Chablis or that sort of thing. But then the acidity is really bright and fresh. So you still get that crispness. And um, and I know it's a tricky word, but a lot of people are really acclaim uh, Godeo for its minerality. Um, <laughs> you know, it, every time it, I use it, that word at work, People ask me, what do you mean what by you minerality? Mean by and I'm stuck because I don't know yeah. how to explain it. Say, um, think about licking a rock. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, it's that it's, 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 you know, I think the easiest way to explain it is, um, you know, if you take out the fruit quality, um, you know, if you take almost everything out, it's like what's left over. Right. <laughs> and, um, and, and, and these wines have that incredible, you know, um, I, I can't define it sort of quality to it, but it, they're just very intriguing. What, what are the white varietals? So the most, oddly enough, and this is very, very interesting, the most uh, widely planted white varietal in Bierzo uh, is a grape that nobody would, would guess, and it's Palomino, really? which is the grape of sherry. So what, is there a cool history behind there, that? I mean, well, is, there, is there a financial history it's behind a little that? Bit, yeah, it's a little bit depressing, actually. Um, it, and it, it was because the... Uh, the folks in Sherry, so in the 50s and 60s, 1950s and 1960s, uh, Sherry was in, you know, in a huge boom. So as you probably know, you know, in the U.S. and in England, so Sherry was very in vogue. And so they couldn't produce enough grapes in the Sherry region of Spain, which is in the south. So they started uh, motivating and actually the government uh, motivated as well people to plant Palomino and to supply the sherry trade in the 50s and 60s. So, it, it, you know, it kind of destroyed their, their almost their indigenous local varieties. So are they still selling the, those varietals to the sherry region? Well, no, because even in sherry nowadays, in sherry, they're, they're ripping up uh, vineyards. So, so they have too many uh, grapes in the sherry region So the sherry itself. business went down the drain. It, it <laughs> kind of went down the drain, which actually is good for j sherry drinkers, you know, uh, because of the quality. The quality goes yeah, up. Yeah, because then they started ripping out. So the first thing that they did was rip out the uh, the the less than ideal vineyards in sherry. Uh, and so, so you have nowadays the vineyards in sherry are only planted on the best soils, um, which is a very particular chalk soil in sherry. And, and so they've ripped out everything else and they've stopped bringing in grapes. But then what it's allowed uh, folks to do, so first of all, you can drink, uh, you can find bottled Palomino, but it's pretty rare even. So they'll blend it into just like a generic white Bierzo. 
So it's like the table white of the region, basically. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Although now more and more and more what they're doing is they're taking the Palomino vine and they're grafting on top of that vine a, a different grape variety. So there's very old Palomino. So there's very old Palomino vines. And so what they'll do is they'll, they'll um, clip, they'll, you know, they'll prune, and then they'll graft on top of that uh, Mencia or Godeo. And so it's crazy that you might have a vine of Mencia or Godeo on top of a Palomino vine. So on top of an American rootstock, because everything <laughs> is planted on American rootstocks. Yeah. So explain this because it's, it kind of baffles my mind. Why not just plant new vines? Why do we have to keep grafting onto old vines? Right, right, right. Should we take a short break? Let's and, take and a come, short break. And, yeah. come, and, come, and come back and we'll answer that uh, really difficult question because uh, we, do need, um, we do need a little bit of time to answer that question. And uh, I want to play some local music, actually, uh, because the Galician music, before we listen to some station announcements, um, is very, very cool, the local music. So we'll hear a little uh, Galician music uh, with their bagpipes, famous for their bagpipes, which is the Celtic uh, tradition. And then uh, we'll come back and answer that question. You're listening to Co-op Radio, K. OOP Hornsby Austin 91.7 and this is another bottle down uh, thank you for joining us my name is Mark Rayshap and we're here with Francois Ponteau so uh, enjoy the music okay we're back it is 1.35 in the uh, capital city uh, my name is Mark Rayshap um, this is co-op radio KOOP Hornsby Austin and, and uh, I think that there might be some folks out there streaming at koop.org um, some folks that uh, that I met along the way and uh, we're here with Francois Ponto and he was very gracious to come on into the studios he was um, he's writer he's a uh, poet and he was a host and he's a wine guy and he was host of uh, writing on the here on co-op radio for six years um, unfortunately uh, different projects have taken him to different parts of the country uh, but thank you for being our guest host today it's it's awesome to be back you know this is this is kind of like this, this was my second home for almost six years I know, <laughs> I know I love I love being in these dark studios and talking on a mic yeah so <laughs> so you had a lot harder of a job than I do because you know you had to almost like read an, a, a book every week to, to have your guests and pretty, to prep pretty much yeah all, like all almost every single week i read a book and yeah. but you drink i, I, I totally I picked to the wrong format <laughs> and 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 you you know you did inspire me to to do or and prod me you 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 prodded me to do this <laughs> gently <laughs> gently gently <laughs> here drink more wine mark it's a good idea i promise <laughs> Well, you know, it's so good to have you here. I think we're having so much fun. And we're talking about um, a, a recent trip that I took to Spain and particularly to the Northwest, uh, which included some pretty obscure but very high quality regions of Bierzo, Val de Oras, and uh, Ribera Sacra. And we left off. What was that question that we left so off? I, on? I had a difficult question, which baffles me because yeah. I'm, I'm not a winemaker. I'm, I'm a wine drinker, right. first and foremost. Right. Uh, and why do why not just plant new vines instead of always? grafting new vines on top of old vines and it's just too complicated right. why is this so complicated um well vines are complicated and and you know that's that's basically the thing is that well first of all let, let's start from the beginning and all of the the grape vines that you know that folks out there know of cab merlot and then some of these they, all of these indigenous grape vines all have a rootstock that 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 cannot be in the presence of phylloxera. So 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 first of all, whenever they plant a new vineyard in Europe, they first plant an American vine, 
And then after two years, they basically chop the, um, you know, almost at the ground, they, they, they chop that vine and they graft on top of it the European vine. So, and that is because the roots, uh, otherwise the root, the, this louse, the phylloxera, which is, which is louse is plural for, um, or uh, singular for lice. So this little tiny bug will eat the roots. So, um, but then, you know, say you have a 30, 40 year old vine, it is possible to rip it out, but then you're going to have another five, six years before you have uh, before you have wine. So there is there's a little bit of a um, a commercial piece to it, but mostly in this region, it's because the conditions are very very difficult for vines to grow in and water the soil. When you have a soil that is so well draining, and all of the best vineyards in the world are on very well drained soils, and so it takes time for those the, the vine roots to get down uh, to a point where they'll find um, you know water reserves during maybe a drought. And so when you have older vines and an older root zone, you have more consistency throughout the year and you also have more concentration of flavors when you have the vine able to tap down really far and sometimes these vines go into you know they go down uh 15 16 feet so what what is the life expectancy of rootstock well that's you know that's interesting so um as long as the vine okay let me give an example in in the on the island of santorini on the island of Santorini, uh, they, they have a very particular grape called a Sirtico, and it, we could talk a whole day about these, this, this grape variety, and it grows in a basket. When they feel like the vine is kind of dying, they, um, you know, they, they, they cut the, the vine off, and then an, uh, more of it, you know, it's like trimming your shrubs down to its, its bare bones, and then, you know, some more come, comes up. Right. They can do this six times. They have root zones in the island of Santorini that are 300 years old. Wow. That's amazing. Yeah. So as long as the vine kind of lives, then that will provide energy to the root to zones. The roots. Um, now a, a producer there who is recuperating very old vineyards, I mean, he'll find a vineyard that maybe, uh, you know, a lot of people in the last 20 years have fled the region. You know, a lot of the young people, they, they, they leave and then they go to the cities and they work, you know, other jobs. And, um, and, and then, so this guy, there was this remarkable guy named Raul Perez and Raul, very famous winemaker, very famous consultant. So he'll buy up these old plots. And he told me that he can recuperate a, a plot that has gone foul for about uh, six to 10 years, six to 12 years. Once the vineyard has um, gone foul for more than, uh, you know, more than 15 to 20 year mark, then it's lost. You got to pull it out. Because then, then at that point, the root zone is is also deteriorating. What what was his name? Raúl Pérez. And he's from he's which, from Bierzo. Bierzo. He was grew up in Bierzo, but he makes a lot of he makes a lot of wild wines all around the world. So he he makes a wine in South Africa, he makes a wine in Portugal. He makes he's a consultant for a lot of wineries in Rias Baixas, which is further west, that's right on the coast. And a lot, most people know Galicia from Rias Baixas and Albariño, which is that grape that's really well known. Everybody loves Albariño. Everybody loves Albariño. So <laughs> he actually got famous, well, kind of drew a lot of attention because he made an Albariño and then he submerged it underwater for like six <laughs> months to see to see what uh, what would happen 
in a completely air, oxygen-free situation. So wait, 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 wait. Did he bottle the wines first? Bottle, bottled the wine, yeah. put it in a cage, and sunk it to the bottom of the sea. <laughs> and what happened? It uh, got a lot of attention, and it was it was really acclaimed. Um, he, he's not doing it so much anymore. He's doing it only in special vintages because it's just such a pain. It must be rather expensive. Yeah, too. yeah, yeah. So, but he's he's just he's just a wild like wild scientist, you know. How old is this gentleman? Uh, I don't know. He's got this humongous beard. You oh, be, I saw, you I really, saw a photo of him yeah, on, okay, on so, Facebook. Yeah, yeah. so Ra- Raul Pérez, he's um, you know he's got this giant beard. I, I would think he's in his forty mid forties. Wow, yeah. so that's that's so cool. But he's he's one of those people who are are are. And to go back to your kind of original question as to what the wines kind of taste like, um, his wines are getting applauded for having a, a very burgundy quality. So, um, so remember what I said about Mencia being like very pretty tannic and then, um, you know, gamey and more like Cote du Rhone. Well, that's kind of true 75% of the time. There's a lot of winemakers that are doing a very elegant, uh, style of wine. So explain something to me, because again, I'm a wine drinker, not a winemaker. Right. How do you use the same varietal and make a dramatically different wine? This is something I get at the restaurant all the time. People will come and say, I want a Malbec or I want a Cabernet right, Sauvignon. Right. And, and I try to explain to these people that tells me nothing because right. if, you, if you buy a little $10 Bordeaux or a $60 Napa Cab or, you know, whatever, you know, the, the Cabernet has so many different ways of expressing itself. Right, right. How in the same region with the same varietal are you making such different expressions of the same wine? Right. Uh, you know, I think that you wouldn't, if we, if we were tasting wine in the 70s, you wouldn't have that question because because um, I think in today's day and age, so many people now they just they just think that there's a formula to um, making the wine because it's that formula that gets good scores that then translate into sales. But um, historically, you know, the, the wine was made just very differently. Now we don't get that question in Europe. We get that question in America. In Europe, I've had tons of conversations with friends of mine in France and other places, and that never even comes up. You don't even... I never anywhere in Europe do you talk about varietals. Only in this country you do talk about varietals. Right, in Europe, right. you talk about whether or not you like the wine. Well, it's it's. I, I think it's an American. Um, it's an American uh, need to know what's in the package. You know, I think that in <laughs> it's like an obsession. <laughs> well, you know, we, we need to know. We we have the, the, such crazy labeling stuff. We need to know exactly how much you know fat and sugar and everything and like what is define what's in the bottle. Whereas and, and the grape variety is part of that. Whereas in Europe, you know, does it make you feel you know does it make you feel good? Does it does it? Um, I, I just think that there's where is it from? Where it's from is more important. Right, and that's you know that's the biggest thing when I'm hanging out with my friends in, in in Europe, we don't say let's go buy Cabernet, we say let's go buy whatever region, whatever right. village, right. whatever vintage, whatever winemakers, because we know, right, what we're going to get from these or what we expect to get from these. Right. So um, so back to kind of um, you know Bierso, uh, and you know I think that a lot of these winemakers are having this you know maybe a little bit of a formula to ripen the grapes further which means higher alcohol. So that's one of the biggest decisions as far, that defines style that a winemaker t- can take. When do you harvest? You know, so there could be a two-week period that you could harvest 
and and the wine as during harvest time it keeps on gaining in alcohol in in sugar and it keeps on uh, and it and the the sugars and the flavors kind of turn from fresh into stewed so where on the spectrum do you want to be? And Raul Pérez is certainly, you know, um, in, in on the earlier side. And also, um, you know, there's just dozens of other variables that can happen in the vineyard uh, to affect this. And and for them in Bierso and this whole region, the a main factor is the age of the vine. You know that it gets that uh, older vines do different things. And and again, please explain that. Why do older vines? make different wines well you know um is it the, so, the so amount the, of the amount of fruit that it produces right so the the um the younger vines will all be about about um investing in themselves you know canopies you know just like teenagers you know they'll just <laughs> all be about you know hey being wild they're 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 untamed um and and they're less about their reproductive organs which is the fruit um uh, you know, and but but the um, but they're more about you know just growing, growing, and 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 the older vines will be about putting their energy into the fruit more so, and so that's that's one of the biggest differences. You get more complexity, you get more concentration, etc. So um, you know, so so and then another big variable once you harvest the grapes, um, you know, Mencias can be a pretty full-bodied wine, and so then winemakers might say, oh, it, it can take a lot of oak. So so the concept there is that you have more full-bodied quality can 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 match with the oak, and so you have. I, I tasted a lot of wines there in Bierzo that that were pretty heavily oaked, and that's kind of a style nowadays with Spanish wine. But folks like Raúl Pérez and and um, we, you know we met a few other people. Do, do you think that they're doing that because they're hoping to get into the American market, or they're doing that because they like it? Um. I, I, that, that's hard to say. I mean, it certainly helps them, or it used to help them. You know, that that's used to be what critics want. But now they're now the, the critics that are mostly judging wine right now are are kind of you know uh, rebelling against that, and they want more elegance and more finesse in the wines. Right. So I'm going to change the conversation completely yeah, now. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, we've got we've got about um, you know uh, 13 minutes left. Exactly. So yeah. I, I want to get into this. What are the ins and outs of of traveling through this particular through this region in particular and wine regions in general you know a lot of people that i've talked to they think they can you know like napa valley you can just go there and visit all these places right. but like in france especially these really small tiny regions th th this is where these people live and work you can't just go knock on their doors you have right. to make appointments and you have to you know you have to announce yourself yeah i mean i think out of the 12 to 15 wineries that we visited one had a tasting room <laughs> yeah know? exactly you know so uh so and and we're talking about really really small wineries i mean um maybe uh I, you know i just did the math so here, here's an example so bierso um let's see here so bierso has uh, about th this is pretty interesting so there's 3,000 hectares which is about uh 7,500 acres of vines but that, those 3,000 hectares are split up between 2,400 growers. That's insane. It, it, it's insane. <laughs> yeah. and, and, and most of them sell their grapes to the co-op. And that's another concept that a lot of Americans don't get. Right, right, right. That you have your family vineyard, but you don't have all the winemaking equipment. So you bring your grapes to the co-op, and they make it, and they you have a stake in it. Yep. So, um, so, so that's pretty interesting. And... Um, 
and and so you know so none of these folks are really um, really really rolling in it and um, and also so I, I wanted to make I was like making comparisons um, this whole region makes about half the, the entire region of Bierzo makes half the wine that Jay Lore makes. <laughs> Which gives you an idea of the quality of Jay Lore. <laughs> well, no, I'm not talking about that. You know, um, I am. <laughs> but but um, but but it's insane that that you have 2,400 growers that are that are splitting up half the production of Jay Lore. I mean, it's just amazing. And so so yeah, you're not going to have these. Um, you know, that you're not going to have these elaborate tasting rooms. But uh, you often will get to meet the 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 owner and the winemaker and. And the mother, she might be cutting you some jamon, uh, you know. And, and you're tasting wine in their kitchen, not their winery. Or right. you're tasting wine outside their winery or in their private cellars. And that makes the, the whole experience so incredible. Yeah. So one of the really thing, the, one of the defining characteristics, like I said before, which was the um, the Camino de Santiago de Compostela. So you see a lot of uh, pilgrims and people traveling through and... Um, and so that's like a really fun thing. You can almost do like a few winery tours and then you could, you know, walk on the Camino for, um, you know, you have to be an official pilgrim if you're going to, you know, stay in their, their little hostels that they offer to pilgrims. But, um, you know, you have to have the official paperwork, but, um, but, but just kind of being a part of the, the vibe of the, of the Camino is really, really cool. So how does regular Joe, regular Jane go to Bierzo? Or, or uh, the other two regions, and and get to meet at least one or two of these winemakers. Are they right. accessible as as humans? Yes, I th- you know I think that it's very um, you know very very accessible. You do need a car. I mean that that is that is a must. You know what I would probably do is uh, go to Leon. Uh, and there's a beautiful cathedral in Leon, one of the most uh, one of the m- most famous cathedrals in Leon. And then um, and then you you rent a car and you're just you know an hour or so away from Bierzo. And um, and so you know, but the 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 most exciting thing to do while being there is other to than- stay, <laughs> other than the is to stay at these old buildings they're like old castles and whatnot that they convert into uh what they call paradors um and that is a way of preserving the history of the building while also allowing it to be enjoyed by uh travelers and so, so we, we stayed in like castles and it was just incredible are these castles owned by private families or are they owned, owned by, by the government by the government okay. yeah and so this was kind of a way that they could um you know that they didn't have to pour so much money governmental funds into maintaining them they have the the, the money from the from the uh, from the tourism from the tourism and and these are all over Spain but they're certainly a lot here because of the Camino and so they you know they've um, you know and and when we arrived in Leon it was it was really funny we were driving in our taxi and uh, we asked you know hey what's that building over there I mean it's like a cathedral or you know maybe it's the the governmental building and they're like oh no no that's your hotel. <laughs> <laughs> Are, are you sharing the, this with the government people? Or did the government have no, their No, it was just, no, yep, it's just, it's just a hotel. It's just yeah. a hotel. And there was, you know, you, it was a museum and other people could, you know, enjoy it as well, uh, other than the people who, who stayed there. But, 
Um, Wi-Fi is not the best, you know, because they've got these huge, <laughs> thick stone walls that the Wi-Fi can't go through. So, so, so do put your, um, you know, make make plans accordingly there. Bring a book. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Do do the old-fashioned way. Is there something about the the village life and the everyday life in these regions that that it struck you as 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 maybe different than what people might expect here? Well, you know, the the pace is incredibly slow, and you're out in the middle of nowhere. I will say that what one of the beautiful things this whole region is as part of what uh, the wine world of Spain calls green Spain. And, and that's that's a something that's been defined because a lot of the other Spanish regions, they don't get a, a lot of rainfall. Um, it's a little bit of arid uh, character. Here, the, the region and the landscape is really devi- defined by a lot of rivers. Uh, there's tons of mountains. And um, going back uh, in the Ribera Sacra, um, you know, it's just defined by these terraced vineyards and uh, crazy rivers, and it's it, it's not like what you think of, like as the the plains of La Mancha, like Don Quixote and 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 all of that. I mean, it's very green. Uh, it it can rain a little bit. Luckily, we had beautiful weather. Um, but, but, you know, these vistas throughout the canyons of where the rivers, oh, and by the way, the rivers were not formed by erosion. They actually, the plates, you know, uh, defined the, 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 the changing of the, of the plates and the, the fissures of the, the tectonic plates are what define the rivers. Are, are there, I know we're running out of time here, but I really want to get kind of the flavors of the regions. I'm, I'm getting that and I'm, I'm, I, I want to jump on an airplane and go yeah, like yeah. right this second. But what, what are the foods there? What, what, like maybe regional dishes. Can you, can you describe right. some of that? Well, they have, um, you know, in, in Bierso, so they're, they're very famous for what's very interesting. Everybody thinks of jamón in, uh, you know, in Spain. And this region, so jamón is the pork-cured uh, ham, but um, this region is famed for a uh, beef-cured, uh, a beef beef leg that's cured. And like it's called, a ham? Really? Like a ham, yeah. It's called cecino, and it's and it's very, very popular there, and it's delicious. I've never even had this. Well, <laughs> this it, is crazy. You have to go there. <laughs> really? And then and then, then they're, they're obviously very famous for their uh, octopus and and I've had octopus on the Greek islands and all of that this is mind-boggling I mean how tender it is it's cut up in like little um, you know little slices that is meant to just be like when you're at the marketplace you just get a plate of this octopus and with oh. two toothpicks you just um, you know <laughs> you uh, and and, oct- and this octopus and the godeo are just incredible together oh that makes me want to go and even you know you you see like this little ring of of fat and it just melts in your mouth and and none none of the octopus that i had while being there which was uh substantial (laughs) was at all tough or rubbery none of it oh my god it was amazing is is seafood a big part of everyday life so seafood you know we were kind of up in the mountains Uh, these regions bierzo valdeoras and uh and ribera sacra um, we're, we're out up in the mountains and so less seafood, the octopus cer- certainly made, made it there. But when you talk about the seafood really is famous for a little bit further West in the Rias Baixa. So that's that seafood in Albarino. Right. It's certainly, we certainly had our fair share of, of seafood. That's, <laughs> that's for sure. I, I will say one of the most impressive dishes was, um, this kind of cabbage wrapped, uh, oh, and they smoke a lot of things. So, so, uh, and that was a way to preserve the, the food 
right. during in a humid climate. So it's a humid climate, so they they can't rely on things to really dry out on their own like they do in the rest of they, Spain. They would so, feel right at home here. <laughs> right, right, yeah. So so they smoke a lot of things, right? And and one of the coolest dishes I had they um, they had like a cabbage wrapped, uh, a really beautiful cut of uh, it was a slow braised um, you know kind of ham, and then wrapped in a cabbage, and then they smoke it, and then they put it under a glass jar. The, the smoke is in the glass jar right. and they pick it up and they whirl it in your face and, and it's just you can smell the smoke and the it, it was amazing oh this is making me hungry and i've got to go to work after this right, instead right, of right. going to go eat <laughs> maybe i can call in sick yeah, yeah we'll, 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 we'll go and have some lunch somewhere <laughs> But um, you know the foods were just were just um, you know were, were incredible and um, it, and the and the folks are just so friendly and I think that that's what you get when you're out in the in the countryside and also one of the things that I thought was incredible was um, the pride I mean that was something that that you couldn't um, the, the pride that that those folks had with their vineyards and uh, and it was amazing I. I find this, and I have found that in, in many small uh, winemakers, and that's the beauty of it, and the, the love that they put and, and the hard work that they put into making those wines. And like what you were saying right at the beginning of the show, some of these vineyards, you know, most people will look at them and say, uh-uh, no way, yeah, yeah. I'm not working this vineyard. Right, right. <laughs> yeah. And, um, yeah, I mean, it's, and, and that was really what stood out in, in Ribera Sacro. Was, and, and you could see the Roman terraces where the vineyards gone, went foul. It was just too hard to cultivate the land, and there weren't enough people nowadays crazy enough to <laughs> clear the forest. There was one guy. It took him 35 years after coming back to his family's vineyards. It took him 35 years to clear the forest on, the, on his family's terraces and then have a viable crop. Yeah. That's Isn't called that dedication. Dedication and passion. <laughs> dedication, yeah. Francois, um, we, we got we got a minute left. What? What? Uh, <laughs> I mean, I've had fun t- chatting. Well, I, I I've had a blast. Yeah. I, I, how do I get a, a radio show now? <laughs> well, anybody you know, co-op tra- trains anybody in the, in radio broadcast but arts. <laughs> I'm gonna go to work, and you know that's part of the beauty of our industry is I'm gonna go to work and I think I'm gonna drink some Mencia while yeah. working tonight because right. that's that's certainly is what and I want. Some Godeo too. And I mean, they're, they're, yeah. and and maybe you can find some. Uh, Octopus somewhere in the, at the Whippin to, uh, <laughs> to whip <it. laughs> I'll, I'll go to Beverage World and ask yeah. Rohit for some octopus. <laughs> he can hook me up. <laughs> well, Francois, thank thank you so much for being on the show, and thank you for having uh, yeah, me. Yeah, we'll have you on again soon. Thanks. Okay, um, you've been listening to uh, another Bottle Down on Co-op Radio. Um, if you've enjoyed this, uh, check out, I, I archive all the shows, koop.org slash another bottle down. Uh, you'll find a link there. Uh, thank you so much for tuning in. We'll be back next week. Uh, stay tuned for What's Your Status, and I hope you all drink a lot of great wine and enjoy it responsibly. <laughs>